continuing in our study of the Gospels. I want to go back now to the Gospel of Matthew. It's difficult, as I've said before, to get a a good sense of the chronology, especially in the beginning parts, Um, especially when comparing John with the synoptics. However, we'll do our best. We read in Matthew some time back, we read of the temptation, well, we read of Jesus' baptism, which we saw very clearly was his initiation, and then that he went into the wilderness for 40 days, according to Matthew, then went through a very heavy temptation experience, which we analyzed thoroughly, and then uh, we left that particular narrative and have been concentrating on other Gospels since then. I would like to go back today, pick up the narrative in Matthew from that point, and follow it through to the Sermon on the Mount, which we will be getting into very soon, perhaps even today. Uh, Immediately after the temptation experience, uh, then the devil leaveth him, and behold, Angels came and ministered unto him. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast, in the borders of Zabulon and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zabulon, in the land of Nephthalim, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a very important bridge in the narrative, a very important uh, section, the significance of which is almost invariably overlooked. Uh, It is not all that clear in English and it's not all that clear (coughs) in the final editing that Matthew has done here either. Uh, But the sequence is important for our understanding of the true mission of Jesus. When the temptation is over, then the devil leaveth him and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. In the, in the context, this is a, a way of saying, using the traditional phraseology of the Hebrew religion, uh, and what later became the Christian religion, that after the 40 days of struggle and the experience of the temptation, parallel as we have seen when we went into this to, to the experience of many other masters, including Kabir, uh, which he was face to face with a negative power. Uh, following that, after he had vanquished that and repudiated or rose above the uh, three possible false turns that his mission might have taken, angels came and ministered unto him. In other words, he went into samadhi. And he was, it does not say how long that he stayed there, but uh, it may be... Uh, 
it may have been quite a while, it does not leave any, there is no indication of the time given, but there is no indication that it was not quite some time either. And we have to be aware that the the way in which these books were written, often we have to read between the lines and things like that. So we don't know how long he stayed, but it may have been a very long time, or it may have been a few days or whatever. But in any case, he was enjoying the bliss of the higher consciousness that he had earned at this point by uh, his very intensive meditation immediately after his initiation. Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, and the reason he left Nazareth is we went into a few weeks ago, uh, is connected with the fact that no one believed in him there because they took him for granted. As we have seen, that was the occasion of the famous statement of how a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. Leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast, in the borders of Zebulon and Naphtali. Okay, these are, of course, Zebulon and Naphtali were two of the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is the extreme north of the biblical Eretz Israel, land of Israel, which uh, became very quickly corrupted. Now, when we went into the significance of the Samaritans and the place of Samaria in the Gospel record, um, we saw how the Samaritan religion had been changed in such a way that the Jews didn't consider that it was really Judaism anymore. Um, this isn't quite the same, but the fact is that it, the, the Jewish people living in other parts of Israel, even back in the time of the prophet Isaiah, uh, did consider Galilee, which is the, what that northern territory came to be called. It was originally populated by the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. They did consider that Galilee was a corrupted place, racially corrupted. Okay, Galilee of the Gentiles is in most translations, modern translations, rendered Galilee of the nations. Because the idea is that many other races, nations, religions came and moved in there and that this had a corrupting effect on the Jewish people who lived there. So this is why they are referred to as the people who sat in darkness. You see, they were in darkness because they didn't have as much light as uh, the people in the rest of Israel. This is what the prophet is assuming, and uh, it is true that uh, a lot of practices such as uh, worshipping various idols and things like that are found, if you hunt through the Old Testament, you can find a lot of references to them around the fringes of Israel. Many of the references were suppressed, the effort was made to suppress them later, um, that were being practiced on the borderland that were the prophets had had worked hard in, in the in the more advanced parts we might say to keep down anyway uh, to those people who sat in darkness were given great light and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death light is sprung up this of course goes beyond a physical description of Galilee here no matter how bad Galilee was, it's probably not fair or doesn't 
is not a valid thing to describe it as, as the region of death any more than, than any other part of the world. Uh, but the point, the point here is, is an illustration of a paradox, and it's the kind of paradox that the path is full of, and the gospel is full of, and, uh, it's sort of, one of the functions that it has is to stretch our mind. It's like the last shall be first and the first last, famous statement of Christ also. Um, those people who had the less, who had the least, okay, to them was given uh, the greatest light. There is out of this tradition, this Hebrew tradition as we have seen, the Hebrew prophetic tradition, the spiritual aspects of it, out of that the great prophets came and they gave light and they were uh, connected with God and they connected other people with God. We have seen that. But the greatest of them, the one who, who taught the true implications of what they had all taught, the one who who showed, who came to show the most and to give the most, came out of that region which was in the darkest. And that is um, why he goes to great length to quote this particular section from Isaiah there. Now from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Which time? This is often lost because there has been 10, 12 verses in between, but this refers to what? When Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee, and from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it is only when his own guru has been prevented from working that Jesus himself begins to work. And the synoptic gospels are very clear on this point if we make sure that we really understand the chronology. Um, there is no record at all in the first three Gospels of Jesus having worked in any degree until John the Baptist was incapacitated. And uh, in fact, it appears that he spent that time, from the time of his initiation until the time of John being cast into prison, in full-time meditation. There is every indication that that is all that he has been doing because that is the only thing that has been uh, specifically stated about him. That he was in the wilderness, first for 40 days, then overcame, and then the angels ministered unto him, up until the time he heard that John was cast into prison. Like I say, we don't know how much time that was fully, but we do know that that is, according to the record, that's all that he had been doing. Now that imprisonment, of course, was prelude to John's death. He was beheaded by King Herod shortly after this, and uh, Jesus may well have had a very good idea that this was going to happen. He may very well have known that this was going to happen. It may not have taken a lot of supernatural knowledge for him to have known that either, because uh, it may have been obvious that no other um, resolving of that particular problem was going to happen. Okay, what was it he preached? He preached... Preach, by the way, is a poor translation. Proclaim or show, demonstrate even, you might say, is a little closer to the original uh, Greek. To the, the sense is like to, to hold a sign in front of people's eyes, that kind of thing. And to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is what, of course, exact message that John the Baptist had been presented as giving. And what does it mean when Jesus says that? When I was 
used to study the gospel as a kid, and then later also after I got initiated too, I used to go over this particular verse and try to figure what it meant literally when Jesus said it, because it has come to us overlaid with all sorts of theological considerations. Repent means literally turn around. Okay? Change your direction. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven is a euphemism. It stands in, in Matthew, he uses it where the other gospels use kingdom of God. The Jewish people did not then and do not now like to pronounce the name of God. This is their interpretation of the commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. They consider that rather than possibly in any way break that, that they will say anything rather than anything that might be construed as God's name. So the other Gospels say kingdom of God, and even that is a euphemism in a way, because by referring to God's kingdom, you avoid referring to him, but it's him that is meant. Matthew says kingdom of heaven, being a little more careful even. But the idea is that God is at hand. Okay, the kingdom of heaven here really means uh, the kingdom of God or God himself. And at hand, you know, can be either time or space. Now, most people down through the years, perhaps most people at the time when Jesus was saying this, took it for granted that he meant his coming soon. And today there are... Uh, you, I think it's safe to say that most Orthodox Christian theology and a lot that is not so Orthodox is based around assuming that this is temporal here, that the kingdom of heaven is coming soon, God is coming soon. And there are, of course, problems uh, with this because depending on how you interpret the words, he didn't come. If If it is assumed, there is a whole school of thought which says that John the Baptist and Jesus thought that the world was going to end soon. So they preached this. And they said it in many other ways throughout the gospel, some of which we will consider in due course. And uh, therefore, uh, it didn't come. The world didn't end, still here. So they were mistaken. And uh, we have to understand the whole mission of Jesus in the context of the fact that he made a big whopping mistake, that he thought the world was going to end in a few weeks, and it didn't. And I always felt um, this was a very diminishing kind of, of understanding of this, and not really very imaginative, uh, even apart from what I know about the living masters and about the whole tradition of masters since the time of Christ. Even apart from that, it is not uh, difficult to see that Jesus uh, knew more and was in the possession of more understanding and knowledge than to make a mistake of quite this dimension. I mean, it was, It is a gigantic error, if indeed that is what he was doing. But it is not necessary to interpret it that way at all. And in fact, almost every reference throughout the Gospel um, is very easy to understand what he was saying if we take into consideration the fact that he is a living master, that he is he has come to show people God within their own selves, and he has come to give them the opportunity to do that as a real living thing. This is their aim in life, and his aim in life is to give them that which will enable them to fulfill their aim. And therefore, what he's saying is, change your direction, because God is right here. 
the opportunity is here for you to find him. It can be interpreted as meaning that he himself is there, and, and sometimes the masters do speak like this, not usually obviously about themselves, but sometimes they might give hints like that. Um, or it could be taken to refer to, look, this is the opportunity, here it is, grasp it, take it. Change your direction and take it, if you want that which you were born to be. That's, I think, the most obvious interpretation of the of the verse. I remember, many of us will remember Sanchi's saying of how when Master Kapal came to Kunichak and he put everyone in meditation and told them to close their eyes and they would see God and Sanchi didn't close his eyes. And uh, someone complained and said to him, why didn't uh, he close his eyes? And Master asked him, Sanchi said that, uh, you said that everyone should close their eyes if they want to see God, but I'm seeing God already, so why do I have to close my eyes? And Master laughed and said, yes, he has understood. Well, both, the thing is, both are true. And uh, if we have those, in other words, both understandings of, of the verse may be true too. There is a sense in which God is present at hand in the person of Jesus, and there is a sense in which he is at hand in that the opportunity to go inside and find him for yourself is there. But this is the essence of the message that Jesus brought. And the only other way to understand this, that is that, that um, repent because the world is coming to an end, God will come in. In other words, what is called the eschatological interpretation, whereas as opposed to the mystical or spiritual interpretation that I've just explained, um, does eliminate, I mean, does make necessary uh, a rather complicated explanation as to why then the kingdom of heaven uh, did not descend down in that way. So that's an important thing. And it's important for us to grasp that um, and to go beyond, I think, also the, the theological overlays. Like repent has a very specific meaning within Christian tradition. So does the kingdom of heaven. That whole phrase does, too. And uh, and yet if we go into the, the meaning of the words in the context with which Jesus said them, as they were being said for the first time in Galilee 2,000 years ago, then we, we see very clearly that he was saying what all masters have said and continue to say. That it's a living thing that does not die and is available to one generation after another. And Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, it's a lake, by the way, Sea of Galilee is its a very small uh, lake, actually. I don't think much bigger than Winnipesaukee, but still it's called Sea of Galilee. Saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father mending their nets. And he called them, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Now according to John's gospel, these people have all met Jesus before. 
And it is very likely, in fact, many people have pointed out that it's far more likely that the meeting described in John's Gospel had taken place and that when Jesus called them, they knew already who he was. If you recall, we went into that first meeting in the Gospel of John many weeks back now, many months back, uh, at the very beginning, in which um, Jesus conferred the name Peter or Kephas onto Simon at that time. And it is very, many people feel that the two accounts do not contradict, but rather complement each other. Notice that they are fishermen, but they're not fishermen anymore. Uh, they left their nets and followed him. Many people have thought, well, if Jesus' disciples were all fishermen, then what can be wrong with eating fish? And it's, it's a reasonable question, except that they stopped being fishermen when they began following him, which is not necessarily... Um, that clear, but still it's true. If we look into it, we see they left their nets and followed him. And the same with James and John. Now at this point, Luke in his gospel lists out all of the disciples, that is, the twelve. And uh, Matthew does not do that. He does that at a later time. But the nucleus of the first initiates, and that is how the twelve were not really all apostles. Uh, some of them became apostles. Apostles means like envoy or um, diplomat almost. Missionary is in the religious context. And some of these disciples became apostles at a later date. Uh, but these people are the ones whom Jesus gave initiation to as distinguished from those who simply came around and uh, got darshan from him, we might say, to put it in the context. Many masters down through history have initiated relatively few people. They have, however, had ministries far wider than the, than the people that they initiated, but that is because they did more than one thing. Ramakrishna, for example, probably did not initiate more than two or three dozen people in his life. He gave darshan to hundreds, maybe thousands of people, many of whom may have considered him their guru. That doesn't mean that uh, that they had committed themselves to him and that he had taken responsibility for them in the way that a master does do. Now, even when a master initiates many, Master Kripal Singh initiated more than 100,000 people, yet still, by the end of his life, there were many, many people who came to him to because they were coming to a holy man who would bring him prashad, who would ask him to heal them, who would ask him to give them sons, daughters, who would ask him to get them jobs, pass examinations, things of that sort, uh, who were many of whom were not his initiates. They may have considered themselves his disciples. If you went into their home, you might have found his picture on the wall. But uh, it does not mean that they took initiation from him. Many of them did not understand the necessity of doing that. So that there are differentiations between the initiates and just the people who were not ready for initiation but who came uh, only to be in Jesus' presence, you might say, or to get something from him other than pure spirituality. Now later on, he initiated others. It's not it's nowhere straight uh, given how many exactly, but there, at one point it speaks of 70, and there may have been others too. And There are people... Um, with whom it's fairly obvious that they did take the initiation, um, who are referred to in the book of Acts also. 
after we after Jesus had left the body. Uh, so he, he may have initiated several hundred people uh, in the course of whatever time his ministry was in Galilee, perhaps more. This is not unusual. Uh, it's only in very recent times that the masters have been initiating more than that. Baba Jamal Singh, who um, died in 1903, initiated, I think, something like 2,000 people, just a few more than that, in his entire lifetime, his entire mission, which was quite a bit longer than Jesus's. It was about 10, 15, 20 years. Um, not sure exactly, because I'm not sure exactly when it started. Swamiji Maharaj initiated about 3,000, and uh, his mission was supposed to be a very important and, and famous one. It's only uh, with Sawan Singh, who began many modern practices, such as initiating in far places, and uh, as Babaji said, he came with, with tenfold power and grace and so forth, who began... Uh, initiating in numbers that, that we are used to thinking of in connection with masters. Silencing initiated in one month in 1934 as many people as his guru had initiated in his whole lifetime, more than 2,000. For that matter, Master Kripal Singh, on the last initiation that he gave in August, August 1st, 1974, initiated more than a thousand people at one time. It was the last time that he initiated anyone, and that was half as much as Babaji had done in his whole lifetime. So these things are relative and change, but it does not mean that the Master is less successful. As Sanchi has said about Baba Vishandas, who was his first guru who had one, one disciple, him, that he never thought that he was less of a guru because he didn't have huge crowds following him and lots of initiates. And in many cases, it's, it depends on who's ready. If a master comes at a time when many people are ready to receive, then he will give. If he comes at a time when there are not so many, then what he may want to give, but who is there to receive? So, in any case, this is important uh, at coming at this point because the Sermon on the Mount, which follows immediately, is given to these people, that is, to the people who have taken the initiation. Then there is a, a summing up section of the type that I referred to a few weeks ago when we were talking about the healing miracles. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic. Note here that the that the people who are possessed with devils are in this place very clearly distinguished from those who are insane, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, and those that had the palsy and healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Now, this is important too. Uh, the, the summing up, the reference, the emphasis on the people being healed and so forth, we went into a few weeks ago and showed what was the reality of that. And it's not necessary 
to go in it now, except that it's this kind of passage which does not go into details, but which presents only generalities, which is responsible for the for the feeling, I think, that Jesus was primarily a wonder worker, when in fact um, he preferred not to do those things. And we will note, what is his response? Uh, no, that is no question, this is the way these people saw him. But what is his response? There followed him great multitudes of people from all these places, wanting him to do all these things. And seeing them, he went up into a mountain. In other words, he got away from them. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, that is to say, his initiates. And then he gave them what is called the Sermon on the Mount. But it's important to note, uh, first of all, the Sermon on the Mount is given to the initiates. It is not a sermon. That's really not a good way to refer to it. Some modern translations call it the Great Instruction, uh, which is really much better. Uh, there are other... Another one calls it the evangelical discourse, which is, doesn't help much at all. But the thing is that it is a set of instructions on the, it's assuming a lot of knowledge on the part of the person who is getting the instruction. In other words, it assumes that the person is initiated and has some understanding of the mystery of the kingdom of God before he says it. He assumes that. It is not a sermon meant to the general public. And that's very important to grasp this because a lot of misunderstanding on what the teachings of Christ really are has come about because people do not understand that the Sermon on the Mount is not a political tract and it's not a, a statement or a charter for any country or exoteric community. That is to say, any, any place where people who are not absolutely committed within their hearts, to finding God within this lifetime, it is not meant for people who are not committed like that. It is meant for those who are committed. For them it is a blueprint, okay, a roadmap, you might say, of the way of living of the disciple, which very similar in uh, content to that which many masters have given both before and after. Based very strictly on the Hebrew scriptures, and there is a great paradox here too, that is that the, as we know, one of the distinguishing features between the positive and the negative power is this business of law. The law is from the negative. Baba Salansing used to say, where there is love, there is no law. And here Jesus is giving them a law, which if we look at it, we'll go into this verse by verse as we go along, but uh, just, you know, looking at it on the surface of it, uh, it's a lot harder than the law of Moses. Much harder. The law of Moses says, don't kill anybody. And the Sermon on the Mount says, don't be angry at anybody. You know, it's like it's it's uh, revved up one or two degrees and that the pressure is really heavy. How on earth can anybody keep it? It was hard enough. If Kabir pointed out that, that the negative power through, through his law uh the main purpose of which was to make sure that people would not be able to escape from karma. Uh, and the masters come to free people from that, then why on earth are they laying down a harder law? Well, it's a paradox, all right. But one of the things is, okay, is to understand the, the, the implications of what happens if you don't do it. 
If, for example, you break the law of Moses, or say, it's not much of some of the law of Moses, as we saw earlier, is of the positive anyway. It's not a good uh, thing to to lump the whole law together and say that it's all from the negative. There are very positive parts of it that do come from the highest order. Um, but say the law in any form, laws of Manu in India, or the uh, Quranic law, or the uh, various other laws that have been promulgated from time to time, all of which serve the same purpose. If you break any of them, what is what happens to you is that you have to pay for it. Okay, somehow or other, you have to compensate for that. It's, it's to evade the necessity of doing this that the sacrificial cult that many religions of the world had, used to have, sprang up. It was thought that by that by giving something that was dear to us, which in a society in which all wealth was, was livestock, usually meant animals or birds, um, then we could evade paying for it from our own body or from our own spirit after death. Um, but whether or not that worked, as we have seen, according to the masters, that does not work. But uh, Whether or not, the fact is that if, if the law is broken, under the realm of law, you pay, and you pay heavily. And uh, this is the root of what is called karma. Uh, in the law that the masters give, okay, what is the idea? If you love me, keep my commandments. Okay, they lay down something that seems to be much harder, as Kyle says to Kabir in the Anurag Saga. Nobody's going to follow your path, because it's too hard. Everybody's going to do mine, because it's easy. I'll let them eat meat, they can drink wine, and all like that, and uh, they'll follow me. And that's, we'll see, very similar statements are found right here in this in this sermon too. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Broad is the gate and wide is the way that leadeth unto destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Same idea. But the point is that even though the masters lay down a much harder line, their purpose is they want us to find God. They know it's required to do that. They know what, what kind of transformation has to happen in us to make us do that, to enable us to do that, in, other, in order for us to receive, to, be, to make ourselves a receptacle so that the grace of God that God is waiting to pour into us will find itself a place to go. And in order to do that, they begin the process of transforming us. Master Kripal Singh has written very movingly about this in, uh, in the book The Way of the Saints, that initiates should understand that this is a process of self-transformation. I think many times we don't understand this, and we don't even understand it long after we've been initiated either. And we have to be shown the hard way that it's a process of self-transformation of remolding ourselves means destroying the old and reshaping the new. It's a very real thing. And the lines under which it has to happen are what Jesus is laying down here at the very beginning of his mission. He is letting in his initiates, his early first initiates, on what is required of them. And not only what is required, but um, it's like guidelines. You know, the first, the so-called Beatitudes, which we will go into in detail next week, one by one, blessed are the poor in spirit, etc., are not really laws. It's not that you must do this or do that. But they're like 
signposts or, or beacon lights, you might say, outlining the delineaments of what is required in order to receive grace. See, if we are this way and this way and this way, we will be open, we will be receptive. If we are not, we will be closed up. So that's why these people are blessed, because they have created in themselves that which is necessary in order for them to get what God wants to give them. And uh, it's like, it doesn't say you have to do it, you know, but it's like, well, this is what, this is who is the happy people. Blessed means really happy. Modern English is usually translated, the word is translated as happy uh, or fortunate sometimes. These are the happy, fortunate people. They're the ones who are well off. And uh, they are the ones who have got this and this and this and this. So pay attention and be like them. That's the, the thought of it. And it's this this so-called sermon is is uh, very important uh, document. All right, people who who lay great stress on it as uh, you know as as a central part of Christianity are absolutely correct. But it must be grasped that it does not stand by itself, but it does assume the commitment to find God on the part of the people to whom it is given. And without that commitment, it's pointless. It is absolutely, for us as initiates, it's to be lived up to, and exactly how that is done, we will go, we will go into in future weeks. But for us to apply it to somebody else, for example, to us to apply it to our country or to apply it to society as a whole and find fault with them for not living up to the Sermon on the Mount is absolutely ridiculous. In fact, it's breaking one of the commandments that's in the sermon, that is, not to judge others. Um, it is not up to them. Only people, only people to whom this, who are committed to this, are those people who have taken it upon themselves to find God who have said to the universe, all right, I am ready to find you. I want to know what it's all about. And to those people, this is what they need. But for people who have not done that, then um, it has no meaning or very little meaning whatsoever. And that has to be, this is an, an instruction given to initiates, to initiates of whom it is assumed that they mean what they're saying, that they want the real thing and it is being shown to them the way to get it. So it's a very real thing, and we will continue with this next week.